I found that a fourth of cowboys in the West during the heyday were black, but most literature and film cut them out. And so anyway, it just really allowed me to tell history from a different angle. And of course, there are people who write, you know, all different perspectives of history. But when I was looking at what was seeming very popular, it concerned me that a lot of people are not choosing those perspectives. And so I guess that this book is sort of putting it out there as one example of how shifting our lens and looking at a different perspective can really enrich our understanding of what actually happened and how our country actually came to be. As a young mother, I experienced a paradigm shift that transformed how I saw education and ultimately the world around me. I started this podcast, The Luminous Mind, to connect with and learn from people who are disrupting the status quo in how they learn, educate, and live in the world around them. Prepare for a paradigm shift. Light a candle. Light your world. Benjamin Franklin said, instead of cursing the darkness, light a candle. You're listening to The Luminous Mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. Today's Firestarter is Julia Soplop. A fascination with animal behavior has led writer and photographer Julia Soplop around the globe. So naturally, when her daughter started riding lessons, the horse's behavior immediately drew Soplops in. What began as a casual interest rapidly escalated into amassing a collection of horse literature, dashing around the country to photograph wild horses and ultimately writing her new book, Equus Rising, How the Horse Shaped U.S. History. Soplops' work has appeared in numerous publications, including National Geographic Magazine Online, Design Mom, Skiing, and the Summit Daily News. She's also the author of Curriculum, Documenting Your World Through Photography. She has a BA in French from Duke University and an MA in Medical Journalism from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She lives with her family and her sprightly hedgehog outside of Chapel Hill. Welcome, Julia. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Well, welcome to our podcast. I'm so excited that you elected yourself to come on to the podcast and talk about your work and some of the stuff that you do, as well as how you do all of that with homeschooling your kids. But before we get started, just briefly tell our audience a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Um, Well, I grew up in Minnesota. And I have always been a writer and a photographer. When I was six years old, I really got into writing. And then the next year, I got a camera as a gift for my birthday. And I got really into photography. And I especially loved um, documenting nature and animals and animal behavior. And so those passions I've always had and have always been a part of my life. I have also always loved to travel. And that in combination with my interest in animal behavior has kind of taken me all over the world. I've done field research on lemurs in Madagascar. I've photographed wild horses in Montana and Wyoming and studied sea turtles on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Um, So that that is sort of, for a long time, I kind of felt like those were um, competing interests, this interest in in biology and in writing and and photography. And it kind of took me until uh, late college to realize that I didn't have to choose any one of those things. I could combine my interests. And so um, I ended up 
getting a degree in medical journalism, which was a, a kind of a combination of classes in the journalism school and in the public health school, and writing for a lot of different publications related to health and science and for some organizations as well, um, especially uh, in global public health. And then, um, and then it got married and started having kids. And I thought, well, I want to be home with my kids. I really wanted to be home with them, but I also wanted to have a creative outlet. And my, I first thought, well, I'm going to have this brilliant freelance career <laughs> where <laughs> when the baby naps, isn't this something we all sort of think we're going to do? When the baby's napping, I'm going to be interviewing these you know, high profile experts and then I'm going to be writing these brilliant articles and everything. And the first article I tried to write when my oldest was a, a baby was I had carefully scheduled so that I was going to do this interview. It was going to take about 20 or 30 minutes. It was going to be right at her exact nap time. And I worked all morning to get her on her schedule and she went to sleep right on time. And I called the person at the allotted time and the person's assistant said, Oh, she's on another call. Can she call you back in 20 or 30 minutes? Oh my gosh. <laughs> said, oh no. And somehow I got through, but you know, the baby was awake and I was rocking her with my foot while I was interviewed. It was so stressful. And I realized, Oh my gosh, this is, this is going to be harder than I thought. And so I retooled a bit and I ended up opening a small photography and design business called Calm Cradle Photo and Design. And I, that was about eight years ago. And that's been something that I've done on the side while raising my three girls. And then, and I could really manage my time and take exactly the amount of work that I could handle and could do while still caring for them in the way that I wanted to. And then more recently, they're now nine, eight, and four. And I kind of found that they are much more independent and I could sort of get back to doing bigger projects mm -hmm. um, that took more hours of my time. And, um, and that's when I started working on this book. That's awesome. And, and I'm so excited to hear about your whole journey on that. So give us more background into how you became interested in exploring horses as part of that influence in history. Yeah. So it's kind of funny because I'm not uh, I, I'm kind of an unlikely person to write a book about horses. I did not grow up around horses. Really, my only experience with them as a kid was like riding a couple weeks at summer camp when I think I was in middle school. Um, but I really wasn't bitten by the bug like a lot of people are. And um, it was kind of a combination of things that happened at the same time that got me interested in the horse. One is, like I said, I'm really interested in animal behavior. And we for several years now, we've gone to, we live in North Carolina and we go on an annual trip to the Outer Banks, our barrier islands every summer. And there are a few herds of wild horses out there. And we started visiting them every year. And I'd bring my camera and just watch them and observe their social behaviors and take photos. And it became part of our family tradition. So in that way, I started to get um, really interested in, in how horses interact with each other. And then simultaneously, my little girls, when they were my oldest, when they were five and three, came to me and said, we need to start riding lessons. And I, you know, I'm not very comfortable around horses. I don't even know when you would start riding lessons. I didn't know anything about it, but they pressed me and pressed me. And I finally found a barn very close by and eventually they started lessons and just, they absolutely got bitten by the horse bug immediately. And they have been riding for about three, maybe more than three years now, weekly. And so while they were riding, I was bumming around with our little one around the barn and just watching these horses and just getting more and more interested in, again, their behavior. And so that kind of transitioned into, then of course the girls started collecting all of these horse books. And then we were reading all these horse books together. And the more we read, the more I wanted to read. 
and started exploring not just their natural history, but um, how they influenced the history of our country. And that got me to thinking that it would be interesting, since the girls loved horses, to design a unit study for our homeschool that revolved around horses. And so I started doing more reading and trying to pull together resources. And I realized this information is spread out all over the place. I thought maybe I'd find a book or two where it was all in here, the, how the horse throughout the U.S. history. And I just, there was information out there, but it was, it was all over the place. And so I realized that it was something that was kind of unique, a kind of unique way of looking at our history and put together this unit study for the girls at their level, elementary school level. But I thought that it opened up so many possibilities for including different figures in history, women, people of color who are often left out of traditional mm-hmm. histories. It kind of allowed me to include them in the story. And I thought, I think a lot of people are going to be interested in this. I should put it together as a book for adults and for teens. So that's how it got started. That's so interesting. I think North Carolina would be I mean, Wyoming and I, I mean, I live in that area. So mm-hmm. I know there's the wild horses out here in, in Nevada, yes. places like that. But yep. North Carolina seems like an unlikely place to find horses to me. <laughs> I don't know why. But. Yes, yes. And, and interestingly, there are a lot of great books about wild horses, but most of them are focused exclusively on the wild horses of the West. And so it was interesting for me to explore more about some of the horses on our Eastern Barrier Islands as well while I was researching. That's cool. Well, so how is your book different? I mean, you said that you went through this whole discovery of finding out like you couldn't find the exact information that you wanted to Mm -hmm. on horses. So how is your book different than other horse books that are out there? So it's different in that in a couple of ways. One, it's sort of a combination of um, it starts 55 million years ago with the natural (laughs) history of the horse. So it starts long before there was a United States of America. but the horse evolved in the, uh, across the Great Plains. And so it starts there. And then it moves forward through its extinction in North America, its reintroduction by the Spanish um, explorers and colonists. And then it talks about the profound consequences of the native peoples of the plains acquiring the horses from these Spanish colonists and becoming incredible mounted warriors. And then really kind of changing the history of the continent by keeping the Europeans at bay from colonizing the Great Plains and sort of stopping the Spanish colonization in its tracks. And then from there, it it follows the arc of the country's history the next 300 years in sort of a survey of American history and how the horse actually contributed, not was just present, but actually was a big driver in in shaping the development of our country. Um, And so it combines, like I said, science, history, literature, policy to give this sort of big overarching picture of the horse's influence. That's really cool. I mean, out in the West, we're still, a lot of people still ride horses and there are lots of horses around Mm -hmm. um, because of how spread out the land is. I mean, Uh, if we didn't have that kind of transportation. But I think, uh, you know, in the eastern side that maybe, you know, like I said, it it just seems like it's 
kind of being lost from that history. I had no idea. For some reason, I just thought that, I mean, this is how much I've studied horses, but I thought that the horses were here and wild and the Indians were the ones that taught the new settlers. Right. I, I had never thought about it at all. <laughs> I mean, I thought until a few years ago, I thought wild horses were really a legend or just something, you know, mm-hmm. something that was completely historical that I didn't even realize there were still all these wild horses all over the place. But but yeah, they they were not here. They were reintroduced. And then the native peoples of the plains spread them to each other. And then they would, um, and in the process, of course, there wasn't fencing or anything back, you know, back in the 1700s. And so they, in the process, they would lose a lot of them. And they also would steal, there was a lot of stealing going on. And so they would, Uh they would stampede someone else's horses and half of them would run away and then they'd take the other half. And so there was this constant losing, stealing, transferring, trading going on that spread them relatively quickly up from New Mexico, Texas, all the way up to the Great Plains to Canada. Hmm. You always hear about the wild Mustang of America, you know, and Mm -hmm. so I just figured that there were just, you know, they were like wild animals and then we domesticated them or something. Yeah. Well, interestingly, they, so the last horse uh, species to, to die out in North America before it, luckily it walked across the Bering Strait, you know, the Bering Bridge, Mm -hmm. um, land bridge to Asia and to Europe before it died out in North America. There's been recent, so it it is a different species than our modern horse. Uh, It used to be at least considered a different species. It has a different name, but, but more recent mitochondrial DNA testing has shown that it's actually genetically equivalent to our modern horse. And so the same horse that died out 8,000 years ago, it's, you know, that's the same species that the Spanish brought back. So there is, but there is this debate. um, And and I go through, I talk about it in the book about whether the horse should be considered a native species because it evolved here and then died out here, partially because of human hunting that was going on, partially because of a changing climate that made it difficult to live here. But um, and then humans, so humans sort of played a part in, um, in its die off and then they brought back the same species. So should that be considered native or non-native or what I talk about in the book, what I suggest is that a, a reintroduced native species is the best way to describe it, but different government agencies consider it in different ways and label it differently. And then that has policy implications because we oh. treat animals differently that are non-native rather than native. So, so it's a very interesting discussion when you look, you know, you dig a little deeper into that natural history. Yeah. This is a fascinating book already for me (laughs) because you've taught me so many things. We're talking about your book, but I'm still interested in knowing what, you know, the homeschooling journey was like for you. You know, we talked about your children when they were young and trying Mm to, you know, what's that challenge that you have when you're encountering that homeschooling situation with all of the writing and research that you're doing? What have you learned from the experience of the homeschooling journey? Well, (laughs) in terms of of homeschooling itself, I would say something that I've learned through that is that even though I put, so my oldest daughter went to a public kindergarten and then I decided that we would try homeschooling and a public school kindergarten. And so um, even though my goal was to try to do something different than the experience that she was getting in the classroom, I found myself, which I think is really common, mm-hmm. um, sort of immediately trying to emulate a classroom in our home. And that is, doesn't always work. It's kind of boring. <laughs> <And> so, 
for everybody involved. (laughs) Exactly for everyone. And so, and you know, when you're teaching two or three kids, you, it can be a very different experience than when a classroom teacher is teaching 20 or 30 kids and trying to measure their growth. And so you don't need to be emulating a classroom. And so what I found was that what gets people the most engaged and interested, both the kids and me, is when we can find something that we, that we all want to learn about and that we can learn about together. And so that, is, that was one thing with this horse unit study is I was getting increasingly interested in horses as they were getting increasingly interested in horses. And so it was something that we could learn about together and we got super into it. Um, we also do a lot of, we do a lot of nature study together, nature journaling, where we're, we draw something and we learn little facts about it and stuff. And um, if I just say, okay, girls, go do your nature journal, it's not very inspired. But if I sit down with them and we work together, then we all have a great time and create something that we're all really proud of. So that that's probably one of my biggest uh, moments of growth was kind of this realization that I don't need, you know, to have my whiteboard up and everything. We can just sit together and learn about things we're interested in together. And so, um, so, and then in terms of trying to find balance, I'm not very good at finding balance, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, what I have found is, so on a day-to-day basis, we often do our sort of formal schooling um, in the mornings when we're all fresh, and we all have the energy to do that together. And then we do sort of a quiet time in the afternoon, which is never actually quiet because no one <laughs> in my family is quiet, but we, that's the goal is that the girls are either working on something that they can, something educational that they can do independently, or they're just playing and building Legos and going outside and playing or something while I get some work done. And then I often work in the evenings as well once they're, um, once they're in bed. Um, but sometimes, you know, I don't plan out. Some people have very strict schedules. We're going to do three weeks on, and then we're going to take two days off, you know, that type of thing. And unless we're going on a trip or something, I just, it's generally a school day, but then when I have something that I really need to finish or when we're all just kind of burnt out and need a break, then we take a day off. So we're just, I just keep it very flexible like that um, so that when something comes up, we can do what needs to be done. Either we can work really intensely on our schoolwork or on my work, or we can just take time off and, and um, take a break that we need. And I think it's awesome when you can teach yourself through this experience and then pass it on to your children of really monitoring that, you know, how you're feeling emotionally and mentally and all that stuff. I think that's really powerful. I love this idea because I'm really trying to get more into that. Like, how do we mentor education for our kids? I love the idea of that unit study where you're both, that's very true. If you're not interested and they're not interested you know, why do we study? And I find too, Mm -hmm. like with a unit study, the cool thing is like, you may study horses, for instance, but I'm sure you can tell us that it branched into, you know, so many things like biology and history. Yes, exactly. All that kind of stuff. That's great. How do you feel like your paradigm has changed, uh, you know, a time and experience with that? Yeah, you were kind of talking about that at the beginning, you know, classroom, but. Yes. So related to that. So when, I guess specifically thinking about history and and about you know pulling together the unit the study that then turned into the book. When I when I decided that I wanted us to study some U.S. history, I started to look through some popular curriculum options and popular history books, and I was not very impressed by them. <laughs> I was kind of shocked that in 2020, a lot of people are still using the same sort of materials and from the same sort of narrow 
traditional perspective that was, you know, in the classroom when I was growing up, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Mm. And a lot of it's really boring. And a lot of it's so boring. And it's all about, um, it's like memorize. It's a lot of memorizing and regurgitating. Mm -hmm. So facts about, you know, dates, battles, victors, you know, and, and usually those traditional histories I'm kind of talking about are written by the victor, you know, and so they're yeah, a very yeah, narrow that's view. Very true. And, um, and so I just kind of scrapped that. And that's, that was, you know, why I started thinking about doing this horse unit study. And then the more I read, the more I realized I can tell stories of interesting women whose, you know, stories are often not told. And, you know, people of color, these Native Americans, I found that a fourth of cowboys in the West during the heyday were black, but most literature and film cut them out. <laughs> you know? That's interesting. And so anyway, it just really allowed me to tell history from a different angle. And of course, there are people who write, you know, all different perspectives of history. But when I was looking at what was seeming very popular, it concerned me that a lot of people are not choosing those perspectives. And so and so I guess this book is sort of, I'm putting it out there as one example of how shifting our lens and looking at a different perspective can really enrich our understanding of what actually happened and how our country actually came to be. And I think also I try to connect events. We often also study history in very discrete events, like let's do a unit on the gold rush and then let's zoom ahead to this other unit about, you know, now let's talk about the American Revolution. And we don't talk about how one thing leads to another, leads to another. And so we're not like really- carrying your action, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're just kind of regurgitating instead of actually critically thinking about how one thing led to another and what that teaches us about how we got to where we are today. So I tried to do that in the book, sort of connect these events using the horse as a narrative thread. That's interesting. Well, and I'd like to talk about that. Like, what's the most, I mean, is the understanding that a lot of those cowboys were black, was that the most interesting thing? Or is there something else that you feel like was really interesting? Or what was really unexpected about that? You know, do you want to pinpoint that? I mean, kind of yeah, discuss so that. There were so, so many interesting things that I found out along the way that I had no idea about. And then when I had early readers reading, you know, reviewing the book for me, pretty much all of them said, I, I learned something on almost every page that I, you know, I thought I had a decent, you know, understanding of, of U.S. history, but I learned something on every page. So there were, it felt like at every corner, there was something interesting like that. Um, one thing that I found fascinating was that oftentimes when we see an image, you know, depicting Native Americans of the, the plains. So I, I refer to them as the horse nations in the book, the, the Native Americans who acquired horses, and then their culture sort of be, began to revolve around them. And um, that you see men shooting arrows from the horse, you see them hunting, but when the Native American women of the horse nations were, were often also expert riders. And the they, women were? Is that the women you, were as well. Oh, yes. Awesome. And so, um, I, and so they were also, they were hunting buffalo, they were capturing wild horses, they were sometimes actually fighting in battles. And so that's not part of the narrative that I had hmm, um, yeah. heard before. So that was one thing that was really interesting. On a personal level, I found, I actually uncovered something about my personal family history, which was very unexpected. That's really um, cool. Which was that, so I, like I said, I, I grew up in Minnesota, but I've, I've lived in North Carolina for much of my adult life now. So we have spent a lot of time on, on our Outer Banks. 
as I said, and have been familiar with the legend of how the horses, the wild horses got there. And the legend is that in the 1500s or 1600s, Spanish horses swam ashore from sinking Spanish ships. And I had never really questioned that because it's such a romantic story. I thought, why, you know, let's just go with that. I love that story. (laughs) And so, but I thought, well, I better dig a little deeper and see if there's some truth to that. And so what I found was that, uh, so we have off our coast, the, the shipwreck explanation is feasible because there are at least a thousand shipwrecks right off the Outer Banks in what's called the graveyard of the Atlantic because there's a lot of violent storms and mm-hmm. there are shallow shoals, sandbars, and so a lot of ships get washed up on the sandbars and wrecked. There's documentation of you know ships that have sunk that had horses on them, horses that were washed off the deck of ships, and then also of actual of the ships themselves washing up on the Outer Banks. But there's not evidence that of particular horses that made it ashore and survived and then reproduced and created this entire population out there. Um, so there's not evidence of that. But what we know is that there, were, there was a, a really unique population of settlers that lived just um, on the mainland, just west of the Outer Banks um, in the mid-1600s that was made up of Native Americans, some runaways from the law, um, formerly enslaved peoples and people running from slavery and Quakers who were escaping religious persecution in Virginia. And so there was this really kind of unique community there and they were mostly small time farmers. Many of them had horses and they started pasturing their horses out on the outer banks and in areas where there are still horses today. And I guess England had imposed a tax, a fencing tax in 1670. And so if you built a fence, you had to pay a tax. And so no one could afford that. So they started using islands to put their horses on since you don't need a fence to keep a horse on an island. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, and then eventually they abandoned, they ended up abandoning some, some of the horses out there who are then thought to be. So there may have been horses from shipwrecks out there, but then these early settlers also put the horses out. But what I found, I started to, I was reading this and I thought, this sounds really vaguely familiar to me. And a light bulb went off and I realized that I, I knew that I had ancestors who had settled in North Carolina in the 1600s and they were Quaker. And I started thinking, wait a minute, this sounds a little bit familiar. And I ran to my bookshelf in my living room and pulled off a book that my great aunt wrote about our family history. And sure enough, uh, I had family that that were part of this community um, that ended up putting horses on the first horses on the outer banks. And I don't know That's if cool. I, I don't know if I'll ever know whether they, my family in particular did, but certainly their community did. And I thought that was just so neat that my, that my own family has this personal connection that we go and visit these horses. And it turns out that, that uh, my ancestors, you know, may have had a hand in actually putting them out there. So I was kind of floored by that. That's interesting. That's like one of those things you're like, you know, it's just destined to be. Yes, <laughs> you find exactly. out this information. And, <laughs> yeah. And that you're feeling drawn to it. And you don't yes. know why. <laughs> That's yes, great. exactly. That's so great. So tell me, what are three key messages that you want our readers to take away from your book? I mean, other than the fascinating history. And I mean, you told me a ton already, but. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I guess, I mean, we've kind of talked about some of them, but, but one, like I said, the horse just had this tremendous influence on on our country's history and and the whole development of the country. And so I think 
uh, they deserve some attention um, and some, you know, they deserve the, the, to have their story told. There were not background players, but they were, you know, essential main characters in our history. So that's one. Um, and then another is just this idea, like I said, that if, if you are, most of us had this experience probably of having a fairly traditional history education, but that is such a narrow perspective. And so I think we should always be working to add mm -hmm. perspectives to flesh out our understanding of what happened because there was, and in, in many ways, um, this is just mm -hmm. one little offering, you know, one more perspective to add to our understanding. And then I guess the last thing, which isn't, Im which is implicit in the book, but I don't actually state, but, you know, I found that when I was writing it, and this is true of any, any topic, the more you learn about something, the more you realize how little you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so I hope that, you know, somebody might read this and think, wow, there's so much in here I didn't know. And that that is sort that sort of, you know, gives them, you know, like some motivation. exactly some motivation to say, Hey, maybe I should read, you know, pick something else in this book, some topic mm -hmm. about these, um, Native American women of the horse nations or something and, and, you know, keep pursuing these, these different perspectives to sort of, to flesh out, um, your own perspective. Yeah. Well, and that's why I love having guests like you that really talk about, I mean, it's such a disruptive idea to think like, you know, history is written by the winners. And so of mm -hmm. course that's the history that we all learned, but there are people just like there are now that were doing amazing things that, that were kind of on the fringes of mm -hmm. that society. And so what a, I'm just so amazed. And I guess I'm just really curious to, I'll have to read your book to find out what the <laughs> what's going to happen. And, and just so my audience knows, I, I just was looking before we even started recording, but that you're doing a launch party on May 14th. It's going to actually, yes. this podcast will air after that. Okay. Um, I'll definitely make sure that the luminous mind is participating oh, in, in that airing. <laughs> yeah. In that airing. So we will be able to find the book. I just don't want our audience Great. to think like, oh, you think it's amazing, but you, you didn't yeah. actually I can't read it. <laughs> no, you haven't no. gotten your hands on it yet. <laughs> exactly. But what a, a neat idea. And I'm so glad that you took the time to flush out those ideas so that we know more about them because it's really important for us to know that. I think it helps to give us courage. It helps to give us uh, hope, um, especially, like I said, if you're kind of a, a person on the fringes of things like that. Exactly. Well, so I've spent a lot of time looking at your Instagram and your website and, of course, the book, you know, different things that you have on that. What fabulous pictures on your website, Thank by the way. You. I, mean, I can tell. I'm like, okay, she's definitely a photographer. Uh, but tell us what more uh, people could possibly find on some of those uh, social media channels. So, um, yeah, so I'm very active on Instagram, especially. That's my favorite social media platform. Obviously, it's great for photography. And I do have a lot of um, my wild horse photography up there. I, mm -hmm. Last summer, um, I went out to Wyoming and Montana, so uh, your neck of the woods, and photographed the prior mountain, uh, the wild horses of the prior mountains, which was amazing. And actually, the cover of the book is uh, a, stallion, a wild stallion from the prior mountains. Um, so there's a lot of uh, wildlife <laughs> photography and I'm also, um, so I do have this small 
photography business as well. And I do lifestyle and documentary style photography. I do portraiture and there's also some nature photography up there as well. And I have a, a book that is a piece of curriculum. I don't like to call it a textbook because that sounds boring, but uh, it's a course, a um, piece of curriculum that is, it's called Documenting Your World Through Photography. And it's an intro photo course for kids, for elementary I say it's for elementary and middle schoolers, but I have parents and high schoolers tell me all the time that they learned a lot from it. So it's, uh, so that is available as well. And it's, I use my own photography portfolio as examples for all of the lessons um, That's cool. that I offer. So, well, and I think uh, what a, a great example, I mean, especially for the fact that you homeschool your kids, um, for them to see you do the research and then, you know, put it into a form that can be helpful to other people, I think. And then that you offer that to us on things that you're just learning with your children every day. And then, you know, the things that uh, will help us. And it looks like a, a fabulous book again. Uh, you're, is that one of your daughters on the, on the? Yes. That's my middle cover? daughter, Nora on the cover. Yes. Okay. And in the, at the end of the book, there's a, um, there's a section, a chapter about, um, storytelling through photography. So the, so the book is about, I mean, it's about developing photography skills, but I think we can also use photography as a tool mm-hmm. to teach kids how to hone their observation skills, to, you know, still their minds, still their bodies, and just observe the world around them. And I think that's a really important skill. And then it also teaches storytelling, which of course we all need to be regardless of whether we're writers or photographers, we need to be able to tell a good story to write a college essay, to apply to college or a writer cover letter to get a job or, you know, a scientist needs to be able to communicate their findings so that other people know what to do with, you know, with the research <laughs> that they, so, so anyway, that um, I included a session that I did with Nora. I always do a session for the girls' birthdays um, on the beach, which is on the cover here. And I included my, how I put the story together in terms of visuals. And then also a blog post that I, that I wrote about, about Nora and about that session. And so that is, yeah, that's the last chapter in the book, getting kids, encouraging kids to tell their own story through a series of images and writing. Well, and I think um, nowadays we have that ability, like we were talking about the old history books, that a lot of us can learn those types of things more visually. And I think mm-hmm. if, uh, if we can all learn to be better storytellers through pictures and through, yes. it has a powerful effect. I think that's why social media in general can be a very powerful thing because, you know, it's not just boring uh stories that you read in the newspaper that a lot of times it includes pictures and stories of, of people and their lives, you know, on top of that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what a fabulous resource. Well, great. Well, tell us some feedback that you've received about the things that you offer with your website and how you're helping other people to be more successful. Well, so the book, so Equus Rising has not, you know, as I said, it has not yet come out, but I've been really encouraged by all of the early reviewers and readers, you know, people I've sent copies to um, who have helped me out and who have also, um, you know, who have proofread, just everybody who's been involved in this process. And as I said, I've just been very happy with the feedback that they have learned a lot and it has um, from the book in terms of both the facts themselves and um, and in sort of making connections that they had never made before between events that they never thought about they'd always thought about them separately um, 
so I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, and then documenting your world through photography. It's been fun. I mean, people will send me or, or tag on Instagram pictures that their kids have taken. And these are little kids, you know, and mm -hmm. they'll take their parents' phone camera. Um, and, you know, you don't need anything fancy for to, to, to the activities. And so, and they'll just, you know, go out in the yard and, and do these activities. And it's been really rewarding for me to see that because I love sharing, sharing this information with people. Well, and that's the cool thing too, like with our technology nowadays. I mean, I'm a Gen Xer, so I grew up in mm -hmm. the, the area of Polaroids or cameras that you couldn't see what you yep. had produced for, you know, weeks on end. Yep. So it's really, and, and children, I mean, your parents just did not hand over the camera because right. you know, that was valuable film right. and, you know, they didn't. So to, for kids to have access, you know, to do the quantity of photos and then continue to improve, I think is an amazing thing. And then, it, like I said, when we can teach children to, uh, to storytell through photos, I just think that we're going to become more, people are going to, you're going to be able to reach a broader amount of people as well as get the story told the way that it needs to be delivered. Yes. So, yes. How fabulous. <laughs> well, kind of to wrap it up, I'd love to hear more kind of about you. What habits do you feel like in your personal life are the most helpful for you to better learn yourself? <laughs> That's a good question. I, you know, I'm a very curious person. And so I, I am always wanting to learn more about how something works or why something is the way it is. I'm never quite satisfied with a basic explanation of something. And so I'm always looking things up. I'm always trying to find, um, you know, reliable resources, which is something that we are just going to have to be teaching our kids in a way that in a different way than we learned, because you can just Google, you can Google anything and you can get the answer you want to get, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah. um, and so anyway, I'm always trying to find reliable sources of information and, you know, when for my, and I consider myself I, a lifelong learner, I'm always wanting to learn something. And my husband is the same way. And so I think we both try to, we, it, we both do that naturally. But now that we have kids, we try to model that for them. And so when we have a question about something, when we're curious, we, we, we say it out loud, we say, you know, I want to learn more about this. And here's what I'm going to do to learn more about this. I'm going to look this up. And I have this book that I'm going to look at. And I, I'm going to look up on this website. And um, and we kind of, and we show them and we talk about, and we are excited that we are learning something. And we, we never say, if they ask us a question and we don't know, we never make up an answer. We say, I don't know, let's look it up. And so I think that we, you know, we're trying to sort of create an environment where for our kids, if they are wondering something, it's not, they're not out of luck because they don't know the answer. They we're trying to show them that you can always, you know, you can always find the answer and it's always worth your time to put the work in to learn something. Mm -hmm. When I think, you know, the whole paradigm change, I, I love that because a lot of us come from an era where the teacher, we felt like the teacher knew everything. And um, at least my background was, is that uh, adults never confessed, basically. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> they didn't have the answer or, right. or maybe the way that they handled that situation was probably not the best. Or, mm -hmm. you know, there was always like, well, I'm an adult and I'm the one you know, and then you were just kind of following them. I remember hearing my mom say a lot, do as I say, not as I do. Right. I think, but I think um, we all come to this as we are with our children and they're watching us, all of a sudden it becomes a very awesome mirror. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, yep, it's that's shockingly right. <laughs> awesome. But, you yes. know, but, and then we shift our perspective of like, it's more important for them to learn how to learn and, mm -hmm. and to watch me through that, to know that 
I don't know everything either. And the, but because I have the curiosity and the humility that I have the ability to learn that. And exactly. I, I guess that's why I, I want parents to come to that faster than, you know, mm-hmm. yes. making a ton of mistakes and never getting to it. So. Just believe us. Don't make the mistakes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Just go, go right to we the curiosity and humility. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's great. Well, tell me, um, I mean, you've already done a ton, but I'd love to hear like long-term goals where you feel like uh, you want to head your life now in kind of this direction or in a different direction or whatever. (laughs) Same direction. So so I do, like I said, I feel like I I have, it's fun that my kids are getting more independent so that I have, I have more time to, to work on these projects um, that I feel drawn to. And so I do have another um, book idea that I, I promised my family that I was going to take a break over the summer after this book launches, but (laughs) I do have another book idea that I'd like to work on that has to do more with scientific literacy and, um, I found as a science writer that a lot of people come out of school, and again, it goes back to the same idea as what we were talking about with history. If science to you is about regurgitating facts and and doing a couple lab experiments, but mostly just memorizing the scientific names of plants or something like that, you kind of miss the big picture of what it actually is and what you know evidence based reasoning can do for us. And so, anyway, I have an idea of kind of exploring that and sort of trying to explain for a lay person who's not a scientist, mm-hmm. what, what is, what actually mm-hmm. is science and um, where can we find value in it? So that is um, a project that I'm interested in. And then I also just, I actually just got the paperwork today, but I'm opening a small independent press um, publishing cool. house. And I don't know where it's going to take me I, at all. And I do have one, one author who's Go, who I'm already starting to work with, and I'm really excited about that. And so I don't know if it's something that I will grow into a much larger thing, or if mm-hmm. I'll just sort of take, you know, if if somebody comes to me. But um, but it's exciting because I want to publish more sort of you know new voices, perspective shifting work, mm-hmm. um, just like all of the things that we've been talking about, just so, to help people broaden broaden their perspective and their views. Well, and um, I, I mean, this COVID-19 situation mm-hmm. has really made me see that, that we have to learn how to, to take the information that we're given, but then also research other ways. But so many of us mm-hmm. feel like, um, you know, if we don't follow the expert or we don't follow, you know, this general thing that we, even though it may feel like, uh, like our intuition is like some, like something's not right here, you know, whatever, <laughs> that maybe. um can affect us in larger ways than we even know. And I I think that's what I'm feeling like with this COVID-19 that, that not having a good grasp of, you know, how scientific research is done and, and having it said to the layman in the, you know, we're not, we're not educated the way that we should. So I feel like I feel like you definitely, that's a niche that that we need to follow for sure. Yes, I think so. And, and, you know, we get confused too between what is science and what is politics. And so I think, you know, that, but science itself is not, you know, when done right, we're all humans, we make mistakes, scientists make mistakes, but you know, when it's done right, it's not political. And then you can use science to back up your different political claims. But I think there's there's become this sort of mixing of thinking that science is politics. And, I, and I'd love to sort of separate those uh, out and really talk about what, it, what science actually is. Yeah. Well, and if it doesn't fit with that political narrative, then uh, it's 
tossed out or right exactly it's it's, and it's just so frustrating because then you're like am I getting good information or just getting what your group wants me to know you know so right and exactly. I, the sad part is it's just made everybody really skeptical all the mm-hmm. time. You know, we don't know who we yeah. can trust and what, what yep. angle, you know, they're going for here. <laughs> exactly. And that's exactly, awesome. that's another sort of aspect that I want to discuss in the book is um, how to become a better consumer of science news specifically, because I think most of us want to be, I mean, mm-hmm. we want to be better consumers of news, but there's so much noise out there that it's hard. It's really hard to figure out who, you know, who, who can we trust? Who's actually reporting on the real science versus just making up their own analysis of it, you know, when they're not really the experts and, Mm -hmm. um, and how, how can we dig in to, to try to look a little closer at a study ourselves to see if what I'm reading is in a news story is actually aligned with the study itself. So those are, those are things that I'm really interested in trying to sort of break down for people and also get better at myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, uh, I mean, my, la- my last thing too is like, I, I guess I want to use science to live a, not to just live longer. I think our parents have done that, but to live mm-hmm. life healthier and more fully. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't want to just sit and take drugs and right. be alive, but right. not really be alive. You know? Right. Exactly. Right. That only helps us so much. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So just have a better life, I guess, um, is, is really important. So give us some parting words that you want our listeners to just leave with them and then give us your contact information just so we know where to find all of these wonderful resources we've talked about. Sure, sure. Well, I guess I'll just sort of reiterate again. I, I just am such a believer in lifelong learning. And I think even as we talked about whatever your traditional or whatever your educational background is, whether it was very traditional or whether maybe it was unconventional, um, it, you know, you're not, you're not stuck with, we compartmentalize education. We think it's something that happens when we're enrolled as a student and when we're young and, but really Mm -hmm. we can, we have the capacity to learn anything at any time. And I just encourage people to to just continue to be lifelong learners and to model that for your kids so that they are, they're always able to, to learn what they want to and need to, to, to live their best life. That's great. And then your contact information. Yes. So um, it's funny. I'm the only Julia Soplop on the web, maybe in the world. Um, It's such an unusual (laughs) name. So my website is juliasoplop.com. And um, like I said, Instagram is my favorite social media platform. So my Instagram handle is at Julia Soplop. And that's, that's a um, great place to find my work. That's great. Well, it's been super fun chatting with you, Julia. Again, it's Julia Mm -hmm. Soplop, the author of Equus Rising, How the Horse Shaped U.S. History. You can find out um, more on her website and social media connections as well. We're going to be sure to link all those on our show notes page. So be sure to check that out. But thank you so much again for coming on. I mean, what a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rebecca. This has been so great. Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. Music featured in this episode from Scott Holmes. To learn more about our podcast, check us out at theluminousmind.net.